Hey there, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to make sure you were aware of a free resource I have. It's an audio training that I created to walk you through the steps of not dieting, but tuning into your body and making the next behavior change that fits you. So if you're struggling to control your eating or feeling frustrated or stressed about weight gain, this is a great guide to just download really quick and listen to and figure out, okay, what are some step-by-step guides that I can take right now to move myself in a positive direction? It really walks you through the how. So if you're looking for that type of guidance, make sure you grab that for free at drhondorp.com forward slash tune in. So check that out and get that today. All right, on with the show. Hi there, Dr. Hondorp here and Before we dive into today's episode with Holly Dykstra, my dietitian, evidence-based nutrition expert, just a reminder that this podcast is for information and educational purposes only and does not constitute any form of professional advice. So always, always, always consult with a professional before making any changes to your specific situation. So that said, let's dive into this interview. So this is a longer interview because I really wanted to get into the research and the evidence with Holly, who has an extensive background in evaluating the evidence. And what we talk about a lot, we talk about different types of plant-forward diets, what's vegan, what's vegetarian, what's whole food plant-based. And then we talk about how these types of eating styles map onto disease risk outcomes, as well as weight loss outcomes. We talk about what data is there, what isn't. We also talk about how these types of eating styles compare to a ketogenic style or intermittent fasting, some of those eating patterns that Holly and I even are asked often about. So if you're still, if you're really working on moving away from the diet mentality, healing your relationship with food, Maybe you skip this episode. I'm not sure, but trust yourself, trust your gut and what feels best to you. But a lot of you have been asking me questions about evidence-based nutrition. And one of the things that I've noticed as we focus overly on weight loss, we get maybe distracted from some of the things that really matter in terms of evidence-based nutrition and food. And nutrition can be really powerful in improving a lot of things for us. So my goal with this episode is to get accurate information as always to you so that you can make the choice that's best for you. So stay tuned to the end. We'll give you some tips on how to apply this knowledge in an anti-diet way. So stay tuned for that. And I can't wait to dive into this conversation with Holly Dykstra. All right. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Holly. So good to have you here on the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Thank you for having me. It's so nice to be here and um, to chat with you. Yeah, I'm super excited. You and I have obviously worked together and I wanted to bring you on today as our nutrition expert. I get a lot of questions when I'm doing this work as, do you have a nutrition training? And the answer is no. I've you know done one certificate, but I really rely heavily on folks like you to help us understand the evidence and the research. So, so glad you're here. So to start off, can you tell the listeners just a little bit about you, your background, just who is Holly? Yeah. Um, so I have a, I earned a bachelor of science and a master of arts in dietetics from Western Michigan university. Um, and I completed my internship requirement through there too. And then I 
went on to become registered as a dietitian. Um, and that was in 2008. So I've been working as a dietitian for about 11, 12 years now. Mm-hmm. You're like um, mid-career. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been fun. And I've, I've had a lot of different um, experiences since I've started working. I kind of started out more in like the acute care um, clinical management area. And then I moved from there into just kind of like an all-encompassing, I worked as a relief dietitian inpatient. Um, so I covered a lot of different areas in nutrition. Um, and then I kind of scooted into the preventive cardiology um, sector, which is where we work together. And I've been doing some um, nutrition education for the cardiovascular patients there. And then I also do um, one-on-one consultations um, and so it's been fun. I've been learning a lot about cardiovascular health and preventive um, disease prevention, um, weight management, all sorts of that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, sounds good. Well, let's dive in. There's along that line, there's a lot of talk about plant-based diets, vegetarian, vegan, Mediterranean style. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in those diets? Yes. Um, yes. So the, I think plant-based diet is becoming kind of a known term. It's becoming more popular. Um, I hear a lot of people asking about just plant-based diets in general. So that's a really broad term um, that describes just a diet that um, is mostly or completely plant-based, meaning that the foods that are eaten are coming from plants. Um, So there's no, either there's limited or no animal products and animal foods are going to be like meats, cheese, eggs, um, where plant-based foods are going to be fruits, vegetables, beans and lentils, grains, nuts and seeds. So um, a plant-based diet is going, it can be a lot of different things, but it's going to be mostly plants. So then you've got vegan diets, vegetarian and the Mediterranean diet. And all of those are plant forward or plant-based diets. The vegan diet is one that abstains completely from all animal products. So no meats, no dairy, no eggs. Um, A lot of vegans uh, also avoid honey because it's technically derived from an animal. So there's, it's a really strict kind of a, um, an eating pattern in the sense that, you know, there's, there's a lot that they're not including in their diet. This is also, the vegan diet is also um, kind of a lifestyle for some people who, uh, so people who eat vegan diets are called vegans. And some vegans um, tend to also just uh, have like a general outlook on um, preserving animals. So they, they sometimes might not wear leather. Um, they, they might not use products that are, you know, experimented on animals. So it's, it's a little bit more, it can be more than just a diet. I've heard them talk, called ethical vegans before. Yeah, there's different types of vegan. vegan. Yeah, so yeah. that's the kind of vegan that would, yes, that's the ones, um, that's what we would call somebody who is who is doing the vegan lifestyle, not just for uh, food and health purposes. It's also just for, um, you know, consciousness of the environment and mm-hmm. for the animals and lots of different reasons. Yep. So no, yeah, no animal products whatsoever. Sure. Right. And then the vegetarian diet is kind of a step further. So, or I guess a step back. Um, so the vegetarian diet is um, plant-based and it excludes meat, fish, 
any kind of like animal-based protein. And then it, it, it can include eggs or dairy or both, depending on what, the, what type of vegetarian diet you follow. And then the Mediterranean diet is still a really plant-forward diet. They, um, so this is the type of eating pattern that is traditionally seen um, or followed by populations around the Mediterranean. So like um, France, Italy, Spain, uh, Greece, a lot of, of these types of populations follow a Mediterranean style diet. And it basically just includes a lot of whole plant-based foods so a lot of um, vegetables and fruits and then grains. Um, and then it also includes moderate amounts of plant-based fats like olive oil, olives, nuts, seeds, fish. Um, so we see a lot of that in the Mediterranean populations. What they limit is um, they really don't eat a lot of red meat and they also limit sweets. Um, so any kind of added sugar, refined sugars. Um, so. And then, and then uh, to take it a step further, the Mediterranean diet is also more of a lifestyle. So they, they make sure that they are active, um, they walk a lot, um, and then they also try to you know, enjoy their food with others. So they sit down and they make meals together and they enjoy like a two hour meal where they can you know, have conversations and enjoy their time together. Mm -hmm. So it's less of a rushed eating process altogether. And they're just, um, they're looking at their food in a very relaxed, uh, nourishing type of way. Oh, that's interesting. So really, when we think about looking at the research with Mediterranean style, which I, you know, I feel like we see more and more now, we are thinking about this actually broader lifestyle factors too. It's not just physically what they're putting in their body. Yeah. And that is something that um, is worth looking at because a lot of the research that we have with the Mediterranean population, we have decades of research, but we have to take into consideration all of these factors too, because when we look at cardiovascular disease, especially, we have to look at diet, but we can also look at like lifestyle factors like smoking, exercise, stress levels. And typically the Mediterranean population, um, they're, they're pretty active in that they walk a lot of places they aren't really sedentary. They don't sit and watch television for a long period of time. And they have, you know, relatively moderate amounts of stress. They work hard, um, but they tend to take breaks during the day to appreciate their food and their company. They make sure that they socialize. Um, and so it's just, it's kind of just a different lifestyle than you would typically see here in the United States. Right. So it makes it challenging in terms of my, you know, my next question is the evidence base for these diets or eating patterns on disease risk. But then we think about how we're interpreting the research. It's, it's more complicated than just, Hey, we studied these people and now we know their disease risk because there's a lot of factors beyond again, just what you're physically putting in your mouth. Yeah. Which I think is good and bad because if we look at them as a model, like those populations as a model, um, they, they show us that, you know, they tend to have much better health outcomes. Um, and so we can kind of look at, you know, their entire lifestyle and the way that they, uh, they, they eat, but also how they live. But then we do have studies here in the United States that include like a Mediterranean style diet. And those show us a lot of um, good health outcomes too. So it's a nice model that they've created to start with, but then we can kind of build on that. Okay. Yeah. So I know this is a broad question and 
you know, obviously are not going to review all the studies, but broadly speaking, what are some of the, the main points or summary points we can know about these types of eating styles and their impact on our disease risk? What we know, the, yeah, there's a lot of really interesting studies and the body of evidence is huge. We have a lot of information that all of these diets, if they're done in um, a, a whole food form, like they're not including a lot of processed foods, because I think what's important to note is that a vegan diet, you're abstaining from animal foods completely, but you can still eat plant-based foods that are highly processed and not necessarily nutrient dense. And same goes with vegetarian too. So if we look at the nutrient dense ways of following these diets, they all show that you 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 can significantly improve your health outcome because a lot of what we eat can um, lead to risk of death. So when we're following any of these diets, the, the vegan, the vegetarian, the Mediterranean, they all show that they can help improve health outcomes overall. So they all can help reduce uh, inflammation or, or um, indicators of inflammation. So if you're familiar with the C-reactive protein or CRP, um, that can be reduced with all three of these diets. We find that we get a little bit um, more reduction of CRP with a, a nutrient-dense vegan diet, mm. um, but the Mediterranean and the vegetarian can also help reduce those. Um, we also have really good um, influence on our cognitive decline. So we can, we can kind of restrict or, or reduce cognitive decline um, more so with the Mediterranean diet, but the vegan and the vegetarian diets can also help with that as well. So okay. they, I guess some, I guess it's, it's, it's a good thing to say that they all three are really good, healthful outcomes. There's small differences between each. Yeah, it sounds like for the most part, though, they're, um, the differences are not huge. And the more you're shifting away from processed foods, because you can, with most of these, I guess, fit in processed foods, although I guess a, a true whole food plant-based diet wouldn't have that, right? But you could have that added in to any of the other ones. But if the more you're shifting towards whole foods, processed, unprocessed foods, nutrient-dense, the more we see a more robust effect on things like cognitive functioning, overall disease risk, risk of death, things like that as well. Right. Yeah. And there's been some interesting um, studies about healthful, like carbohydrates, for instance. Um, you can find carbohydrate because carbohydrates are mostly from plants. And so we're going to see them in fruits and vegetables and grains. Um, but you can have a lot of different versions of carbohydrates. Like you can have Donuts, for instance, they are uh, high added sugar, refined grain products, but they're still carbohydrates. And then you can also have fruit, which is a um, nutrient dense um, carbohydrate with a lot of fiber and vitamins and minerals and antioxidants. And so there's a really interesting study done in 2017 by Satija et, et al. And it showed that um, the unhealthful plant foods like juice, sweetened beverages, um, refined grains, French fries, sweets, or um, desserts, they increase the risk of cardiovascular health, um, poor outcomes. But then they, they also had um, participants in the study follow, the, eat, eat about the same amount of carbohydrates, which is more healthful versions. So like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, 
um, less refined nutrient dense foods. And they found that they had a significantly reduced risk of developing cardiovascular disease. So they had, they had much better outcomes overall. So, you know, we're looking at, they're eating about the same amount of carbohydrates, but we're looking at the nutrient poor processed style foods causing worse health outcomes long-term, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that's kind of what all of it boils down to. I and mean, we hear about all these different nuances of these eating patterns, but making that shift towards nutrient dense versus nutrient poor is obviously important. And so, okay. What about, you know, this, on this podcast, we're not obviously very anti-dieting. It's kind of one of the things I talk about because it can undermine autonomy. At the same time, there's many people that are interested in weight loss for whatever different reason for their individual health goal. And so what about, what do we know about these eating styles and weight loss? And do we have long-term data? Because I'm not particularly interested in short-term weight loss data. I don't find it particularly compelling because (laughs) they're the V studies down and gradually back up. So when I say long-term, I'm talking like four or five years, that'd be what I'd love to know. Yeah. So, and that, that is a really good point. Um, because, because a lot of these like fad diets highlight short-term only weight loss studies, like a year or less. So the nice thing about the vegan, the vegetarian and the Mediterranean is that we do have a lot of long-term data, um, especially from like the observational epidemiology, like, like Mediterranean diets, um, we can look at other populations and, and kind of use what we see from them as part of our own research. So, um, so long-term studies with all of these show that no matter which of the three basic types of diets that we're talking about, vegan, vegetarian, and Mediterranean, they all show that you can reduce weight significantly and keep it off. So there's like a long-term weight loss with any of these. Now the vegan diet shows a little bit more um, weight loss. And this is where the studies get a little confusing. Cause I think we're looking at studies of around two to three years where people lose the weight and keep it off. But I think we need a little bit more long-term data, like how, and I think the studies with the vegan diet are, are more limited too. Cause there's, there's not like huge participants in the studies that we have long-term. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so that, the long-term is maybe two to three years you think. Yeah. A lot of them, a lot of them show big results like that. They're just, uh, we, we just don't have a lot of data for long-term weight loss. We do have data that the vegan diet is really effective with weight loss. Um, and, and I think what I would like to see is just larger studies for long-term, um, effects on, on weight loss for the vegan diets. Mm -hmm. But, but there are some pretty good studies that point to benefits, um, and weight loss. And then the vegetarian and the Mediterranean diets, we have, we have very long-term studies that show that weight loss can be achieved and maintained for, mm-hmm. you know, five to 10 years, at least. You said for Mediterranean and vegetarian? Yeah, mm-hmm. we have a little bit more data with that. And I guess, I guess we probably have the best data for the Mediterranean diet, mm-hmm. um, which I think is really compelling because that makes me feel like I'm, I'm ready to recommend that to a lot of different people just because we, I do feel a little bit more comfortable with the data we have there. Not to say that we don't have good data with the vegan and vegetarian. I just think that um, Mediterranean, we have a, a lot of really good long-term studies that support weight loss. 
Yeah. And you said for five to 10 years for, for that one or for the Mediterranean style. And how much uh, weight loss are we talking in some of those studies? Is there an average? Yeah, kind of depends. Yeah. So usually it depends on the baseline. Um, mm-hmm. But usually I, I would say like 10, perhaps even 20 pounds mm-hmm. um, is, is pretty common. In terms of like the average. Yeah. So some people lose more, some people lose less. So we're not yeah. talking huge weight losses here, correct? No. Well, no. And I guess that, you know, I guess you'd have to kind of, we, we'd probably want to look more at studies of people who have a lot more weight to lose mm-hmm. um, versus people who don't really have as much weight to lose. Um, the thing with the Mediterranean diet is a lot of times these long-term studies are really just showing that people have maintenance of a healthy body mass index. So it's not to say that they were ever really severely, they didn't have a, a lot of weight to lose or they weren't severely obese, but um, but we do show a lot of studies where people maintain a healthy body weight for a really long period of time on those types of diets, especially Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it might be more applicable for someone starting with like a little bit of excess weight that maybe they want to get down, but it wouldn't maybe be as applicable. We probably don't have those studies longer term for people that start or start at a larger body or higher weight, correct? Yeah. And I feel like the people who have um, more weight to lose, the, the vegan, the studies about the vegan diet or, or whole food plant-based diets show more um, weight loss up front. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah, it does. I don't, I didn't know if there was a lot of like bigger studies in those groups. I, I hadn't seen a ton. Yeah. So that's where, you know, I think the Mediterranean supports more of a long-term like weight maintenance um, where I found a lot of the vegans, um, the research with vegan diets and, and the vegetarian too, is that they, they can kind of promote more of a, an, an upfront uh, higher amount of weight loss. And then they can help, they can help to maintain weight loss overall. Do they have longer term data for that? I've seen like two years with the more vegan, um, uh-huh. the vegan style. And I, I can't remember, I, I wrote about it in a blog so I can link it, but um, I hadn't seen beyond that. So, I mean, promising, yeah. but two years. So, yeah, that's what, that's what I found too. And I know you're familiar with Dr. Dean Ornish and Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn and the research that they've done with their patients. And those tend to be pretty like not, they're not super long-term studies and they tend to be smaller um, patient groups too, like, you know, 30 to 50 patients that they're following or, or, maybe even yeah. like year 80. So it's not like huge amounts of people and pretty um, intensive interventions where they're meeting like once a week. And I believe Dr. Esselstyn like requires a pretty strict adherence. It's quite the commitment. It is. Yeah. Not for the it's, faint of heart. <laughs> it, it's cool though. Cause it does give us a lot of research that we didn't really have before. Sure. Um, yeah. I, think, I think that just indicates that we need to do a lot more research there. There's room for, for more in this field. Um, with mm-hmm. those types of diets and their outcomes. Yeah. And I think, yep. Bringing to light the possibilities of like how much we do see some reversed disease risk in people with like, even with Esselstyn studies, right. This end stage heart yeah. disease, they were basically told like, this is your last option. And so that's, yeah, I think I know one of your goals and one of my goals too, is like 
no judgment. Like if people want to make a huge shift or not, that is your choice. But really mm. giving people that that data of like, this is possible. And we've seen people do it. And, and yeah, the more we study that, and the more we talk about that, it's just giving people full option versus saying your only option is a major surgery, or your only option is, you know, these um, other medication type treatments. So just giving people choice. Yeah. And that's so great, isn't it? To, to know that you have that you can explore that type of choice if you want to. So I appreciate yeah. the research that's been done and what it shows that that food is so powerful um, that it can actually help to reverse disease. Yeah, yeah. And and with, I've talked a little bit about the research that I've sort of done personally with the cancer risk and how much our eating style can make a difference there. I'm curious what your thoughts are about why, I don't think this information is given to people a lot. I, I think that's changing a little bit. Um, but like even recently, I know someone going through a cancer treatment and they weren't discussed, like nutrition was not discussed with them at all. So why do you think that is? So one thing that's worth noting is that um, physicians go through an extensive amount of schooling and um, training and but, but they really don't have a lot of nutrition at all during any of their training. In fact, it's usually like one or two classes unless they choose to go after that. So I think part of it is that, you know, when we're, when we're doing, when we're talking about something like a cancer treatment, um, especially, there are so many things and so many intricate ways of, of treating cancer that I think bringing diet in is oftentimes, I think it's, it's, Number one, I don't, I don't think a lot of people know much about it. And I think number two, it kind of, it, it gets a little muddled. It's confusing when you're mixing that in with potential treatments like chemotherapy and radiation. And so I, I, I'm not sure if it's just like, it's overwhelming or if there just needs to be more um, awareness brought to it. I mean, I think really with nutrition, I think among providers all across the United States, we just, we need a lot more education. And then I think also like, uh, one thing I'll say is that with the media and social media, I think a lot of times there's so many mixed messages and confusion that people um, get, they don't really know what to believe. And so I think some people will say, this will cure cancer. And then you'll have somebody else saying, no, that won't. And so I, I just, I wonder if, it's just a matter of people just kind of don't really talk about it much because it can be really confusing mm -hmm. and there's conflicting messages too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be nice to have a place where some people can go to be like, this is where, you know, there's always going to be different studies that say different things and you can always like cherry pick your studies, but looking yeah. at the broader research body, right? Like what's what we know, you know, we don't, we never know truth, right? That's the scientific method, but like, what do we, what's the, the evidence pointing to? And that brings me to my next question, you know, in terms of the research for some of these more plant-based, plant-forward, plant-heavy diets, how does that research body compare to any of the evidence for more of what we're hearing about with ketogenic diets or intermittent fasting? I get asked about keto and intermittent fasting, like every single time I meet with somebody, it, it's usually brought up every time I meet with somebody and talk about nutrition. It's just such a hot topic. So both like the keto diet and low, any kind of a low carb diet, I think is really trendy. 
And we don't really have a lot of information on what these diets can do long-term. So when we're talking about, so the keto, the keto diet, for instance, it's supposed to put us into um, ketosis and, and it's, it's really limiting in terms of like, it, you know, we can't really eat a lot of carbohydrates. It's like 10 to 20% of our um, calories coming from carbs, which is yeah. very, very low considering a normal healthy type of an eating pattern. We recommend anywhere between 40 to 65% of our calories coming from carbs. So we're and whole food plant-based is even higher sometimes, right? Yes, it can be. Can yeah. Be, yeah. And, and the Mediterranean diet is, is usually somewhere between 40 to 60% from okay. carbohydrates. Yeah. Um, but yes, if, yeah. So if you look at the breakdown of nutrients, there's not a lot of room when you take carbohydrates down to 10 to 20% of calories, there's really not a lot of room for things like uh, fruits, vegetables, I mean, those are carbohydrates and, right. and they're extremely nutritious uh, forms of carbohydrates too. So then we're left to fill the calories with fats and proteins. Um, and so, so looking at, you know, the research that we have just on these, on, on like keto diets and the outcomes, there's a lot of short-term research that shows weight loss um, within, you know, three to six months and improved blood sugars within three to six months. And, um, and just like, uh, you can improve your lipids, but a lot of, a lot of that might potentially be because, um, when people start going into more of these fad diets, what, what we often see is that they're starting to pay attention to their eating pattern just generally more than they ever have. And a lot of times we see reduction in calorie intake too, because and this is where, you know, we have to look at like individual case studies versus overall studies on large populations. But, but a lot of times people will eat less just because they're paying attention to their, to their diets. So then there's a calorie restriction and that no matter what type of diet you're eating is going to lead to weight loss. Mm -hmm. So short-term long yeah. studies, long-term studies with keto, the keto diet or any fad diet really is, is really important because you can lose a lot of weight from any kind of fasting. And I think a lot of times with the keto diet, some degree of calorie restriction occurs initially at least. And part of that is because a high fat diet is going to be really satiating um, because fat takes longer to digest and it can lead to um, bigger feelings of fullness and satisfaction. So long-term people are, are we, we don't really know what's happened, but short-term people are gonna eat less they're going to feel more satisfied. And so we will probably see improvements in all of their outcomes simply because they're eating less and they're losing weight. So with intermittent fasting, we also need more research on that because we don't, we, again, we don't have long-term studies with that either, but um, intermittent fasting, and there's a lot of different ways to do um, a fasting type of a diet. But usually what we most commonly see is where people fast for anywhere between uh, 10 to 14 hours or 16 hours a day. So it only leaves like an eight to 10 hour, maybe 12 hour eating window. And we can, there have been some um, interesting points that have come from the research that we have. Like we, we can actually see reduced um, in, inflammatory markers. Um, we can see weight loss. Um, we can see improved blood sugars. But we can also see um, that there could possibly be muscle loss. So 
when, when you're only eating for like an eight to 12 hour um, window, if you're doing it appropriately and you're including a really good balance of macronutrients, making sure you're getting good quality fiber, protein, um, and some healthy fats too, to balance a healthy body, then you might, that might actually be beneficial for some people. But if you're doing it in a way where you don't really know what you're doing and you're just kind of restricting your intake and you're not eating nutrient dense foods, it could cause muscle loss. And then long-term, we don't really know. So we don't really have any long-term data on either of those eating patterns. Not, not that I would, no, no, we don't. Cause they're all, I mean, they're all pretty short-term. And yeah. one thing I'll say about the keto diet is that it's very similar to the Atkins diet in the eighties. And, um, in that it's really high in, in fat and then, you know, especially like red meats and cheese and eggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't really have great outcomes from the Atkins diet either, except that it promoted short-term weight loss. Right. And were there some negative outcomes of the Atkins diet? Yeah. So, yeah. so you're going to, so with increased saturated fat intake, you can, you can get higher LDL levels. You could get higher inflammatory markers. And there were some studies that showed that people had more of this. They also had more risk of heart disease. Um, so yeah. I, I think to revisit the keto diet, you know, we're, we're kind of looking at potentially similar outcomes. Mm-hmm. Have they done anything on plant-based keto? I've been hearing a little bit about that now. Have they studied that yet? Like systematically? Yeah. So, yeah, so they're, they're starting to. Okay. And it's interesting. Again, I think they need a long, a longer term, you know, really long-term studies on this, but they have found that you, you may have um, better outcomes with a, a plant-based keto simply because you're replacing saturated fats, um, which are known for increasing LDL cholesterol levels and, um, and having more negative effects. So replacing the saturated fat with the unsaturated fats um, can reduce heart disease. And, and yep. there's- um, So lots of avocado. I'm trying to think what else that would be, but yeah, moving away from any of the, um, basically, typically animal-based, although not always, I yep. would imagine, but almost always, yeah, with saturated fat. Yeah. And then, yeah, moving away from that. Animal-based foods are going to have saturated fat in them. They're also gonna have cholesterol where plant-based foods typically don't have a lot of saturated fat and they don't have cholesterol. So you're, you're moving away when you go to more of a, a vegan or a vegetarian, uh, like a plant-based keto style diet, you're gonna take away a lot of those saturated fats. And the saturated fats have been directly correlated with, with higher rates of LDL and atherosclerosis. So when you kind of replace those at Harvard, Lee and colleagues did a study that showed that if you replace saturated fatty acids with, um, they, they looked at unsaturated fatty acids or grains. So both of those, you're replacing saturated fatty acids. Um, both showed uh, a reduced risk of heart disease. So okay. there is, yeah. And so, so that kind of, you know, shows that generally saturated fatty acids are something that we probably would benefit from reducing. And a typical ketogenic diet is going to incorporate lots of saturated fat. Yeah. It it points again to this idea of moving away from animal protein, at least to the extent that 
you know, in terms of like the disease risk piece of things, right? Like that, because yeah. again, yeah. And I, I want to make sure that's accurate, but that's sort of the picture when it, we kind of like step back and look at the broad picture and the broad themes we're seeing, because it's so easy to get caught up in the, the nitty gritty and the macros and all of that. And I think that can be kind of fun, at least the researcher mind in me likes that, but it's kind of overwhelming even for me. And I, I have a little bit of experience in this, but if you step back and look at the big themes, right, it's mm-hmm. moving away from saturated fat and animal proteins, increasing whole foods, unprocessed stuff, yes. and then flexibility and, and choice, giving yes. people flexibility and choice and not telling them they have to do anything a certain way. Yes. Does that yes. map on your I, experience I, of working yeah, with people? And- I, I kind of like to look at it in like a spectrum scale. And from the research that we have that I would consider, you know, good, strong, solid research, it seems that um, a fully plant-based or like a vegan style eating pattern with low amounts of saturated fats, that seems to be the best in terms of potential for disease reversal. Mm-hmm. where something like a Mediterranean style diet um, that incorporates small amounts of animal meats, like um, very small amounts, but then is also very plant heavy, um, is really good in just disease prevention fully, you know, for, for years. So yeah. they have in common that they, you know, they focus more on whole foods and they don't have a lot of saturated fat. And what's what another piece that they have in common is that they have high amounts of fiber, because fiber is really important, especially from a cholesterol perspective, because it can help bind to cholesterol and help kind of manage our LDL HDL levels. And it can, it can lead to better blood sugars because it helps kind of, uh, you know, with the, with the blood sugar rising um, and storage of carbohydrates. It, it can also help with weight management too, because fiber also makes us feel really full. Mm-hmm. So what's unique about all of those diets is that uh, the vegan, the vegetarian, the Mediterranean is that they also have a lot of fiber in them. Even the, even like a plant-based keto diet has a lot more fiber than what a traditional keto diet looks like. Yeah. And so I think the good news is yes, from a disease reversal standpoint, some of the more, um, you know, really limited animal products might be a, a you know, your best bet for disease reversal. However, for people who don't have like more significant progressed heart disease, cancers, things like that, it might actually be. And, and I guess even from like my standpoint, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out, like, I probably fall into plant-based or Mediterranean, but I mean, like it's, one of my big things is like giving people choice. And for me, it's important to not be restrictive in any of these ways. So I'd pepperoni pizza and meat when I feel like it. Right. And I would probably, but there's pretty strong data that that would be pretty, at least similar ish to that Mediterranean style, right. Where lots of plants, but flexibility. Right. And I guess, like you said, they're not doing a ton of red meat, but it doesn't sound like those styles of that's been studied. It's not like they're limiting really anything per se. They're just not eating a ton of it, not eating a ton of sweets, not eating a ton of red meat. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I love that because it's so great to be able to have flexibility and choice. And in in my own practice and my own experience, if somebody were to come to me and say, Hey, I really want to work on disease reversal. That's when I would say, okay, are you, are you motivated to make a lot of changes? Do you feel like you're ready to 
long term, you know, be a little bit more restrictive in your food choices? And if the answer is yes, then I think a whole food plant based vegan style diet could be really good for them. But if they say, no, I don't want to have restriction, I think that might backfire. Then I would say, okay, you know, a Mediterranean style diet is really helpful for just disease prevention overall. It'll probably make you feel good. And then you'll have freedom of choice too. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think just being empowered and in, in being able to make decisions based on like, this is good for my health, but maybe I can allow myself to occasionally have something like a pepperoni pizza or a burger. Um, but really just knowing that all, all together, you're trying to um, nourish your body with more nutrient dense foods so that you can honor your goals of, you know, helping your body be at its best. And, and I think is really freeing just being able to understand that you have choices there. Right. Yeah. And I think um, that leads to my next question is sort of on this podcast, one of my main things I talk about is really developing this anti-diet relationship to food and nutrition. And I think it's really challenging for many people to do that one, because we're, you know, bombarded with messages about should. And I think even in this discussion, not that we are trying to promote any form of eating pattern, but I think it's easy for people to get triggered back into, gosh, I really should do a vegan diet. They're telling me this has all these benefits. So when, what ways have you worked with people to try to move away from that? And what have you found most helpful for people as they're trying to look at evidence-based approach to nutrition, but not being should and all the stress and shame that comes around with these shoulds and the pressures yeah. we feel? Yes, yes. And I, I really love that you're um, focusing on, you know, the anti-diet uh, anti type of a mindset. Um, so usually what I would, what, what I like to do is, is um, it's really such an individual approach. So I think it's important just to like reflect on, you know, what, if somebody comes and talks to me about, you know, their best eating plan and, and creating something that works for them. I think it's really important to just listen to what their goals are and to really, um, you know, have them kind of understand why they're thinking about this. Because if they're thinking about it because they're trying to impress somebody with, you know, weight loss or a body goal, body image goal, um, then, you know, I, I just think that's worth reviewing a little bit, right? And just kind of thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, and if their goal is, is one thing, then I think it's important just to say, okay, let's stay in our lane and really focus on what your goal is. Um, not to think about this other person's goal or this other person's advice. Um, and that can be really challenging, but- Yeah, it's not easy. It's not, it's really hard, especially like what, what we talked about earlier with social media and, and people you know, having conflicting messages. That's most of the reason why people give up on their diet is 80% is of people actually give up their diets after 30 days. And it's largely because of conflicting research and conflicting information and just too much information too, just the overwhelm of it all. So mm -hmm. I think it's really important just to like uh, talk about you know, what their particular goal is. And then um, if their goal is, is to, to be uh, their healthier self, then I just, I think that's when it's important to talk about motivation um, and lifestyle. So that includes like, what's your schedule? Like, do you like to cook? Do you like to prepare meals? Do you think about food ahead of time? And so it's a really individual approach to try and understand 
all of these factors that can play into what is a, a better eating pattern for you. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like for you, it's as the the provider and the helper, you're helping them walk through those steps. But really for anyone trying to do this on their own, A, it's really going to be hard to shift some of these mindsets, especially depending on how ingrained it is, right? I always think about like the diet mentality is probably on a continuum to some extent, but it's kind mm -hmm. of like air. We're kind of all breathing it, whether we realize it or not. And then being able to kind of tune in reflect internally and like, what do I really want here? And does this change really map on like and again no pressure right like maybe you reflect and you're like wait this isn't my goal this is someone else's goal for me or maybe yeah like really looking at like what what fuels me and and that people don't do that very much they there's too many pressures and they were I mean we're basically bombarded with pressures of like we need to look a certain way even the health messages sometimes can be counterproductive so oh yeah and, and that's, a, I think that's a really good point because what we were talking about earlier with like physicians not having much nutrition education at all, um, I hear a lot of conflicting messages from physicians as far as what they should do. And a lot of times physicians are really just focusing on weight loss. They're not focusing on, you know, eating more healthfully. They're just like, you have to lose 30 pounds and that's how you're going to get rid of your diabetes. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, in some ways, like weight loss will lead to better health outcomes for a lot of people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they can't just make changes to their diet and maybe, you know, be a little bit more active. And if they smoke, they quit smoking. And those things can lead to a, a lot of improved outcomes too. Even so if the scale doesn't move, right? Like sometimes weight loss, yeah. when we lead with weight loss, in terms of like how it undermines autonomy, at least what I've seen is when we lead with weight loss, it almost always undermines autonomy because it A, starts with a should, sometimes mm -hmm. sets people up for failure because they focus too much on calories or that short-term restriction. And then it, then they feel like I've messed up, I'm regaining yeah. or... And then that undermines their feeling of confidence in themselves. And it's a vicious cycle. It's a really vicious cycle. And it makes me sad when people, if I have um, like a follow-up with someone and I've met with them previously and we have a plan and then they come back and they say, oh, I feel really good. I'm sleeping better. I, you know, my clothes are fitting a little bit better. I have more energy. I'm not getting that midday crash, you know, but then they'll say, but I, the scale hasn't changed. In fact, some days I gain half a pound and, and some days I lose it, but you know, and then I'm like, well, let, why are we focusing on the scale when you feel so good? And there's so many other, you know, outcomes. And a lot of times we have labs to show that, you know, it's improving too, but I think it's easy to get stuck on the numbers, but the problem is that the numbers um, don't really show us everything and they can be really confusing too. So it can get overwhelming when we, uh, when we feel like we're failing just because the scale is not reflecting overall health. Yeah, not helpful. I think we already kind of talked about this in terms of like, I, I think a common question, and I'm actually right now listening to T. Colin Campbell's new book, Whole Rethinking the Science of Nutrition. And he talks about the, one of the questions he gets a lot is, do I have to give up all animal products? And we kind of already touched on this. For the most part, the answer is probably not. Um, I mean, again, there's maybe that the more extreme case of a disease reversal. If you want to feel like I'm doing every single thing in my control to reduce 
my disease risk or to reverse my disease risk, then maybe you decide you want to do that. But the mm -hmm. good news is from the vast majority of, of folks that there's probably good evidence from this, these long-term Mediterranean style diets that we don't need to do that. And we don't need to stress about it. Correct. Right. Yes, that is true. Okay. And I think there's always that, like, if you're looking at the spectrum to see like what even the Mediterranean diet um, can be kind of confusing because the, the, it's a really like loose term. And I think that's great because it does allow a lot of flexibility, but you know, that I think the Mediterranean diet usually recommends somewhere around uh, two or three servings of red meat a month. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, including some um, healthier fish, like fattier fish a, a couple times a week. And then, you know, limiting the amounts of um, like lean proteins, like chicken. So any kind of like poultry, even like a pork tenderloin, limiting those to a few times a week, and then trying to get some meatless meals in too, and focusing on including legumes and grains. So it, yeah, that, you know, the research altogether for, for decades, it incorporates some of these like diets, the Mediterranean style diet, where they're really not eating like any red meat. But then there's also some studies that show that people are eating a little bit of red meat and they don't really have any restriction as far as fat goes. And they all point to better health outcomes. Yeah. So we can stop of, yeah. getting caught up in the weeds and and stop stressing about it to some extent, right? And, and obviously everyone can kind of map it onto their life and see how it fits. But I think that's good news in that. And, mm -hmm. and usually my and I think you're the same, like, let's focus on what you're, we're adding in versus, and maybe, I don't think there's as much data that that helps a ton with weight loss, unless you're really going to like mostly plant foods. But I think just from a, a health risk standpoint, again, it depends on your goals, but focus on what you're adding in versus what you're taking out because all of us hate restriction and it backfires mm -hmm. biologically, it backfires psychologically. So the, the, the good news is there's good data to suggest we have a lot of control over our health without stressing about restriction or the number on the scale. So that's, that's the positive take home news. <laughs> yes, it is. And, and to that point, I love to focus on what to add in and it usually is soluble fiber, which comes from plants. So it's not, you know, it's not to say that you have to eat when people come to me and they say, I heard that eating only a plant-based vegan diet is the best for me. And I say, well, maybe, but maybe not. Um, but what's nice about that is that it does include a lot of soluble fiber. So all of the diets that we've been talking about, the, the, the vegan, the vegetarian, the Mediterranean diet, they all include a lot of soluble fiber. So I feel really comfortable saying, I would love for us to try and get more soluble fiber in your diet, because like you said, it, it's not restrictive. It's actually, you know, saying, Hey, we can add this in. Um, so it's kind of exciting. And then also the health outcomes, you know, with all of any diet that incorporates more soluble fiber tends to have much better outcomes. Um, so it's yeah. a really nice thing to be able to say that um, as a dietitian, it's really exciting because it's, it's a chance for me to say, Hey, we don't need to restrict. We can actually let, let's look at, you know, including more, but I know it's going to help that person ultimately long-term too. Yeah. And I think that that's you and I have talked about, and I've shared on the podcast, my personal experience, I had given up dieting. So that piece wasn't actually that hard, but it was nice for me. I never think about what I'm cutting back on really ever. Um, I always think about like how many more plant-based type meals. And I use the forks over knives meal planner still like how much, let me try to do as much as I can this week. Like if I can make three, if I can make four, great, but I don't, A, I don't stress about it. And also 
But when I can, I feel really proud of myself. I feel really good about it. And so it can be empowering. It can, they're, they're usually pretty meals too. They're colorful and I feel really good about that. And yeah, it's work. I went to Trader Joe's very late last night. I was exhausted. <laughs> I didn't want to go, but I feel good about like, I got the stuff now. And again, it's focused on what we can add in versus what we're taking out. And that um, I hope, I think our, our default is always what to restrict. And I know that even... I think physicians do it because it just feels easier and it feels like people need Mm -hmm. to know what not to have, but, and maybe that's true depending on the person, but I think really giving a tool for what to have, what to do and feel really good about that is empowering too and, and very helpful. So, yeah. And I think it creates a healthier relationship with food too. When you think of a food in terms of like, what, what can I add in? And, yeah. and what types of foods are going to honor my body and my goals best. Right. Um, where if we say we need to restrict and we can't eat these things and we, we have to limit ourselves to like a thousand calorie diets, it just, it backfires. It's, it's really hard. And, you know, so I think there's always good intentions with that kind of a recommendation, but what's not um, taken into consideration is, is personal considerations. Like does, does this person struggle with having a poor relationship with food already? Is there, is there overwhelm with information being given? Um, you know, what's yeah. the long-term goal? And I think, I don't know, this is my experience too, though. I think what I'm seeing is like, yeah, for sure, if you have a really challenging relationship with food, but I think even the people on the spectrum of like, nah, I haven't really struggled with my weight much. Maybe I'm gaining a little bit. You go into the doctor, they say, don't have this, this, and this. That yeah. person usually comes back to me and is like, and I've been hearing more of these stories now because of this podcast, like even just people in my personal life, they're saying, well, now that's all I want. That's our human nature, right? And so uh-huh. that doctor was really well-intended. And yet you actually just created this increased desire for food in this person who didn't really struggle with it before. Like they didn't yeah. have that. And so I think it's on a continuum of like, it's not just, oh, people that really struggle with their relationship with food. I think all of us, like that's just human nature. We want choice. We want freedom. We want lack of restriction in our life. We got enough restriction. We got enough stress. We got enough things going on. We don't need extra. So that's my soapbox. (laughs) It's disappointing, isn't it? That that's where, that's where we are now, you know, with, with, um, lots of restriction and, and, and that just backfires over and over again. And I, I really enjoy the Mediterranean way of eating just because it does allow a lot of freedom of choice and, Mm -hmm. um, and in the Mediterranean populations, they don't really have that restrictive mindset and they don't, they tend to have really good relationships with food because they're not thinking in terms of, I have to eat this. I can't eat that. It's not like a all or nothing kind of a mindset. It's a very, um, you know, balanced type yeah, of way of thinking. I get to eat this or I want to, or I, this is consistent with my values. Yeah. Again, all that internal language for sure. I think we got through most of the questions that listeners had, except I did have one about this grass-fed, grass-finished meats versus organic. Do we have data on that and how much that matters, or should we just not stress about it? What are your thoughts? So in my experience, there's there's some data, um, and it's interesting, um, and it does show that like grass-fed meat um, can have, um, higher omega-3 fatty acids or the unsaturated fats, Mm -hmm. and it can have slightly lower saturated fats. Okay. Um, same same goes for, um, like 
eggs that, uh, like uh, certain eggs that are um, grass fed, or, or I'm sorry, not grass fed, but um, vegetarian fed, mm -hmm. the chickens are usually given flax seeds. So we're gonna see a higher omega-3 content in those as well. Okay. Um, so I think, you know, there, there are very small changes though. It's, it's not a lot. And yeah. if you look at when, when humans eat these foods, it's, it's probably only making a very small difference in terms of what, you know, this type of meat is, is giving us. Now, I will say that like or, organic, we don't, we don't have a lot of evidence on there's small amounts of there's like a couple studies that that point to evidence that um, organic produce um, actually, if if people eat more organic produce, they can um, have less risk of um, you know pre presenting birth defects to infants. So, I mean, there's some there's some interesting research, but it's really limited and it's kind of all over the place. Um, and there is also you know, some evidence that having non-organic produce is useful just because if we look at the recommendations for how much produce people should be eating, we, we if everybody ate what they were actually recommended to eat as far as produce goes, we wouldn't have enough in this country. So if we only focused on eating organic produce, you know, some of the non-organic produce is really useful too because it, it can help us just get produce altogether. So you and asked about beef and I went towards produce, but just yeah. organic overall, I think it's interesting. Yeah, so it sounds like kind of in terms of the grass-fed or like the finished is when they actually like always feed them the grass, I think. But um, that, you know, if you can do that, there might be some like ecological or animal rights benefits because those, you know, the, that might be done on farms where they're being treated better. But in terms of stressing about it, we probably don't need to stress about it too much because once like the the actual difference is probably going to be minimal. And then in terms of organic, it sounds like there's some mixed evidence there, but again, I don't know. I've, I'm, I'm probably biased because I read more so of like the T. Colin Campbell's work, but what I've heard from him is more so like even the, the potential like carcinogen in a pesticide is going to be outweighed by the bulk of the, if you're getting a lot of plant foods in that, that actually has much greater impact and we don't talk about that enough. So I don't know. Yeah. Does that sound right? Yeah. That's absolutely right. Cause um, yeah, like some, so, so this is just an example. Um, there have been some people who have expressed concern to me about eating produce period because they're afraid of the pesticides that are being used to treat them. And that's a valid concern, but they end up not eating produce at all. And so they're missing out on you know, fiber and antioxidants and um, lots of vitamins and minerals that are important for our cells and our bodies to thrive. So I think that definitely, you know, we need to know more about organic foods and how foods are treated and what that causes. But we know that there's so much benefit in produce, at least, um, that the, the risk does outweigh, or I'm sorry, the, the good outweighs the risk that that we should be just making sure that we get a lot of produce. Um, if you buy organic, there's potential for benefits there. Um, with with meat, you know, you're you're probably avoiding um, antibiotics in in the meats. And again, we need you know more information about what that's causing. Mm -hmm. But um, 
it's it's not going to make a huge difference if you choose non-organic versus organic. Right. Yeah. So basically, again, we cannot stress about that and still feel really good about what we're able to do, what we're able to afford, what we're able to get and still focus on, again, what we're adding in versus one, what we're taking out. Yeah, definitely. I think that's the thing is that you have to kind of think about your own situation. Mm-hmm. And if you feel like organic, if it's not, if it's too expensive, it's, mm-hmm. it's not going to be the end of the world if you don't eat organic. Um, I think what's important is just looking at your overall diet composition. It, does it include produce? Does it include, you know, whole plant-based foods as, you know, as more of a base? Um, are you able to eat lean proteins? And, and so I think looking at like the entire diet is really more important than looking at like one specific food. So saying, if you say grass-fed beef is better than um, non-grass-fed beef, yes, potentially you are probably going to get some benefits from eating grass-fed beef. But if, if you're really worried about that and not the rest of your diet, it doesn't really matter anyway. Right. And that's, yeah, kind of the theme that it's like step back, take a bird's eye view. And when we do get so hyper-focused on all the little details, we just get distracted. We get stressed. We, and then we end up sometimes not making changes like the example of that person you said, or like avoiding something that would, we know is really helpful for us, which is a whole variety of plants as much basically as many plants as you can get variety fiber right that's Mm -hmm. but that's ultimately coming back to like plant type foods whole foods as close to their natural form as possible fair yes because again it's the processed foods that we find to be nutrient poor um and so those are the ones that i have more concern with is you know when we when we look at um like breaking down organic and grass-fed we need more information on that kind of stuff anyway but I really, if, if somebody was asked to ask me, like, what would be the most concerning thing that is included in a diet that needs to be looked at more, I would say, let's look at the processed food. Um, so any kind of refined carbohydrate and added sugars, is that making up the majority of your diet? And is the ratio of those to whole foods that are nutrient dense, if processed foods tends to be a lot higher then that's where I would say, that's the place that I would start with first, mm-hmm, just because mm-hmm. all the research shows that that's not beneficial for us. And that can lead to more um, disease risk overall. Yeah. So if someone's listening here and they're saying, okay, this sounds good, but I'm pretty overwhelmed because I'm more close to the standard American diet. Like I'm eating a good amount of meat, a good amount of processed foods. Like where would you recommend they start? Uh, the first place I would start is asking So I think it's important to ask yourself, can I add in any good whole source of fiber? Um, Like, can I add in a fruit? Can I add in a vegetable? Um, Can I shift my plate so that perhaps my plate contains a little less meat or a little less refined grains and maybe a little bit more vegetables? So just making a small shift like that and doing that every single day, long-term is gonna lead to way better health outcomes. So I think yeah. it's just, it's really simple. Um, and if you feel like it's, it's overwhelming and, uh, and you don't really know where to start, I would just say, start with one simple change. And if that can be adding in like an extra whole plant-based food um, and just kind of shifting your plate around, that's gonna be, maybe that's the key for you. And then reevaluate at some point too, because maybe you'll find that, you know, you feel better doing that, or maybe you find that there's some, some way that your body and your brain responds to that shift. 
So maybe in a couple of months, you can reevaluate and see if there's something else you can do at that point. Sure. Yeah, those small, consistent habits, feeling really good about that and building from there, very opposite of the way we typically approach weight loss efforts or diet efforts. It's usually this big overhaul, but instead just like start small, be realistic, feel really good about that, and then go from there. So perfect. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add or ways that uh, folks can connect with you or learn more about you and what you're doing? So I think uh, I just kind of want to encourage everybody to really think about their health goals and um, not put too much pressure on themselves and to just really enjoy the experience of eating and uh, trying to be, you know, navigating this path of trying to get healthier um, enjoying that and being patient um, and knowing that it's a, a step-by-step process and not a race. And uh, I would encourage people to, you know, not look too much into social media and influencers and, and uh, try to just simplify their own goals and stay in their own lane. Thank you so much, Holly, for being here. It's been a pleasure chatting with you as always. Thank you for sharing your, your evidence-based knowledge with everyone here today. Appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been so nice to talk to you again. And, um, and I'm, I'm happy to hear everybody's benefiting from your, uh, your wisdom and, and all that you have to share with the world. <laughs> well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much for sticking with us. So I just want to real quick summarize what we learned from this episode and also talk about a few tips and strategies to apply this information in an anti-diet mentality way. So first of all, I think it's really important with nutrition to really step back and look at the big picture. So I'm actually still in the middle of listening to a book, Whole, Rethinking the Science of Nutrition by T. Colin Campbell. And I briefly mentioned that in the interview today, but he talks about really if we can step back and look at whole foods, bigger nutritional patterns and not get caught up in the weeds so much that that's going to really benefit our health. So this, I think the discussion with Holly today really did re-emphasize that similar message. And some of the main key points were that eating more whole foods, unprocessed foods, more plants like your fruits, vegetables, grains, legumes, things like that, usually are quite nutritious and are going to be quite healthful. Plant forward diets, more plant foods in those categories is beneficial. But the good news is the data does not suggest that we need to be overly restrictive at least for the average person trying to improve their health to get the benefits. So there's not a lot of data to suggest that you have to be fully vegan to get these health benefits. And and we have some really good data, longer term data of the Mediterranean style diet, which is a very balanced diet in terms of there's a lot of flexibility built into it. So that's the good news. And you know, the other thing we talked about is just this overfocus on weight loss and how it really distracts away from what truly impacts our health with regards to nutrition. So kind of reinforcing some of the messages that we've talked about in this podcast as a whole. So some ways to apply this in an anti-diet way. As always, I want you to reflect on your goals, your values, and really how these certain eating styles map onto your preferences. And if you're going to be miserable on a certain eating style, that's probably not the right eating style for you, right? We need to figure out something that feels doable, flexible, sustainable. We want to focus really on what you can add in versus what you take out 
benefits of doing that are immense and can feel really positive and good. So focusing not on restriction, but what are we adding in? And if you're going to start somewhere, Holly recommends looking at soluble fibers, which essentially looks means looking at some plant foods typically. If you're overwhelmed, you can start small. You can just do one extra snack a week or one meal. Does it not have to be a huge overhaul unless you are feeling ready for that? And then continue to reevaluate and build on habit changes and try to enjoy the process. I know this is really hard and I don't want you to beat yourself up if it's hard for you to enjoy the process, but try to enjoy the process of learning, growing, changing, improving your relationship with food, and that's going to help to facilitate more improvement, more change, and relating to yourself in a compassionate, flexible, internally attuned way. So those are some tips. Thank you for tuning in. I know this episode was long, so I appreciate your time being here. I hope that was helpful, and I'd love to hear what questions you have and what reactions you had to our discussion today. Thanks, and have a wonderful day.